Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, the safe space created for Black women by Black women to strip away the taboo of talking about mental health. You'll hear from mental health professionals and advocates as well as Black women sharing their experiences as we break down the complexities, explore ways to heal, and support each other. My name is Ashley, I'm your host. Whether you're a seasoned regular or this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into today's episode. Today, we have a special guest that we have frequently on the show. We call her our in-house psychologist. Uh, we have Dr. Son Stevens. Dr. Stevens, thank you again for, uh, for hopping on the podcast. I always love when you when you come on the show. Do you want to just give like a brief introduction for anybody that might be new and tuning in? Good morning. Black girls have anxiety to a community. I'm Dr. Stevens, Dr. Son Stevens. I'm a licensed psychologist in the state of Florida with about 15 years or so. Um, uh, practical experience, research experience of working with children, adolescents, adults, older adults, different milieus, individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy, in terms of addressing different clinical issues. So we have things, the less severe um, end of the continuum, focusing on adjustment issues to more severe psychopathology, working with individuals with severe mania or bipolar, severe depression, anxiety, post-traumatic, schizophrenia, those types of issues. So that's my, my area of specialization. I am board certified in those areas as well. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Stevens has been on the podcast quite a few times and she works uh, with us to continue to bring us really good information. And today um, we've got a topic that I know we've both really been excited about bringing to you guys. We are focusing on racial bias in healthcare. So today we'll kind of be touching on how uh, not only does it affect mental health, healthcare in general, um, we'll be talking about some of the historical, the, the historical nature of racial bias, particularly here in America. And then how is that affecting us now with COVID? So Dr. Stevens, I've got a little fact here that I want to start off with. So according to the COVID tracking project at the Atlantic, nationwide Black people have died at 1.4 times the rate of white people when it comes to COVID-19. As of right now, we've lost 73,462 Black lives to COVID-19 to date, and Black people account for about 15% of COVID-19 deaths where, we, where race is known. So how, how, I know that this is pretty recent when it comes to COVID-19, but kind of talk to me about your feelings about that and coming into a pandemic and seeing the, the racial bias that's taken place. You know, and sadly, like I wish I could say that I, you know, certainly, am or was surprised, you know, certainly by what started off as anecdotal or anecdotal accounts of individual Black people throughout our social media complaining that their relatives died or that their relatives were morbidly sick, you know, and we just started to see this pattern of just an inordinate amount of Black and Brown people. So African-Americans or people of African descent, I should say, and Latinos having experiences where their members, where their family members and perhaps themselves were falling victim, if you will, to the effects of COVID. And again, it's just, again, seeing this anecdotal evidence and over time where it wasn't necessarily just anecdotal, it became certainly a pattern, a pattern became a trend. And 
you know, and what we have currently in terms of the statistics that you uh, started to show off with. It more so speaks to this long ingrained pattern of racism within healthcare. And in a sense of not only where, where um, black and brown people have limited access to healthcare, but once they get access, they're often delayed, denied basic services that the average person would have no problem, the average white person, I should say, would have no problem being able to access. And so when we see, again, the morbidity of COVID-19, it more so speaks to the comorbidity that is, uh, and I guess I want to be careful with this word, but you know, that we see that tends to occur with black and brown populations. Right. Right. Definitely. And I know for some, for some people tuning in, they may not quite understand like, what does racial bias within medicine mean? Can you kind of break that down for us? I sure can. I could talk about, you know, and, and actually, because I know I said a couple of words, you know, and um, a little bit earlier, I'll break those down as well. But so, you know, we can have medical bias, right? Let's start off, you know, let's think about this on a continuum. So medical bias are those unintentional errors of judgment, Mm-hmm. that we as scientists or practitioners make. And again, you know, some, sometimes um, maybe our um, intentions are neutral or positive, but because of these inherent biases, these inherent biases that are implicit in biases, implicit biases we're not necessarily aware of, it leads to a negative or incorrect conclusion. So for example, you know, so let's say if you're working with an individual, you're working with an individual and you get their, um, their presenting problem and you happen to start to see that maybe they have a history of eating fried foods, of, you know, of maybe not engaging in exercise or doing like more health promoting behaviors. And so here, so as a practitioner, you're thinking, okay, so this is the the plan of action before I meet this this patient. But it starts to impact like how you modify those interventions. Right. Or how you think about preparing yourself in order to interact with that individual. So that's that unconscious or maybe unintentional bias Mm -hmm. or effect that leads to an incorrect diagnosis or conclusion. Right. On the other end of that spectrum, we have medical racism or scientific racism. You know, and certainly when we think about that, this is more so like what we think of whenever we think about science and people of color science and blacks. You know, and j- just those two buzzwords, right? It engenders a very negative connotation for a lot of individuals understandably so because there was this pattern of intentional acts intentional policies that were implemented that were based on the uh, on the inferiority hypothesis mm-hmm. where the more closely aligned to white you were the more desirable your traits were whatever was being measured whether it was brain size, skin color, bumps in your head. Mm-hmm. And again, had no basis in, in medical fact, but it was this perpetual belief that the more closely aligned to white values, to white qualities that a person exuded, the more desirable, the more positive their traits were. And it's that, is is this implicit 
sorry, I said implicit. This is intentional belief where a person actively engages in perpetuating that discrepancy right. or, 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 or that, that power differential. Right. And so I know that I did find something really interesting that I did not know before, but um, I saw that there was this, there is this name of this mental illness, and I have air quotes right now, mental illness that came up. It was proposed by a physician, an American physician in 1881, Mm -hmm. Sam Cartwright. He uh, created the term draptomania, Mm -hmm. and this was a conjectural mental illness that he hypothesized as the main cause of enslaved Africans fleeing captivity. So basically saying slaves who ran away were said to be suffering from mental illness called dreptomania, which I was in shock because I had never heard about that. But then you think back, nobody's going to argue with him in 1851 saying, well, there's something wrong with them if they're running off, like right. they know what's good for them. And I always think when in terms of racism, There was no point where anybody stopped and said, look, maybe we need to review these past thoughts and and opinions and hypotheses that we had and reevaluate them because Black people are human beings. And that implicit, or not implicit bias, but that very intentional bias that happens in scientific, in science from way back when never really gets corrected. It just gets compounded and yeah and then we fast forward to 2020 and COVID-19 happens and then they talk about vaccines and then wonder why black people are side-eyeing them from all corners of the country (laughs) right right very much so and that's the thing about it you know certainly you know you speak about the the draft uh the term of draft mania right around the same time they also determined uh developed this term called uh dementia precox and dementia precox, you know, it was very similar to our current day understanding of dementia, but they more so attributed this to Blacks or, or in that time, slaves. The inability to remember things, and it wasn't necessarily the manifestation of inability to remember things, but they attributed it to them being the inferior race. And so you have sometimes, you know, certainly facts that are extrapolated and then manipulate it to fit the, <laughs> very much so, very yeah. much so with dementia precox. And that's the thing about it is that certainly dementia precox, well, dementia, I should say, but that's what it was called back then in 1800. It certainly has relations to uh, current day terminology and and, uh, and our understanding. But again, but it's that idea of like taking those one terms or, or, or taking these particular events and manipulating them in order to fit certainly this very sinister right agenda yes definitely um is there any particular event that comes to mind when you think about scientific racism well you know of course being a psychologist there are a plethora of 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 um events um you know certainly and 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 actually i think you know, so I've always had an interest in psychology, but more so where my passion for working with people of color um, evolved from was understanding and seeing how scientific racism was used to justify the psychological ex- or manipulation of individuals on a psychological basis. Right. You know, so for example, like you had uh, Cyril Burke, who was this very intelligent geneticist or biologist. 
And what he did is that he had these twin studies. Mm-hmm. So he took white twins and black twins. And, and so let me just preface that with saying very quickly that, you know, so twin studies, identical twins, right? So so we're able to examine the nature versus nurture argument, right? That's, that also has like historical terms and unhistorical in the sense that, you know, whether or not biology is, can be attributed to all of the differences that we see or is it environment? And of course, back then, when certainly he was a prolific researcher, it was either or, is it nature versus nurture, nature versus right. nurture. Right. And so one of the studies or methodologies that they use were the identical and fraternal twin studies. And so here he used an identical twin study where he took white twins and black twins and he measured their brain size in order to conjecture whether or not black children were <laughs> inferior in intellect to white children. Wow. Now, there are, of course, many, many problems with that, you know, in today's standards. But even then, I mean, as outlandish and certainly as outrageous some of the methods have been, he he was actually kicked out um, by the scientific community because they discovered that he had falsified data to justify his conclusion. Wow. He justified, but on top of that, and, and I think just as importantly, is that brain size has no relationship to intellect. Yeah. So again, yeah. you know, we have that, you know, where, where a person takes one quantifiable measure, and this is, I think, you know, certainly brings us to, to our discussion to present day, where you take one quantifiable measure, and you take that one quantifiable measure, and you stretch it and manipulate it in order to justify this very racist agenda. Right. Wow. And so I'll leave that there, you know, but certainly that that's the study that comes to mind historically. You know, yeah. of course, you know, we have like more present day studies. I guess it was present day when I was studying it. You know, there was a book called The Bell Curve in 1995. Yes, I remember The Bell Curve. Yeah, The Bell Curve. And, and the author's names escaped me at the moment. So please excuse me. But certainly where they, you know, certainly normalized that or, or they talked about the normalization of all scores on this normal curve, right? Mm-hmm. So where you have average scores, 68% of scores fall within average. So whatever, whatever scores, mm-hmm. I mean, wh- whatever measure, whether it's intellect, personality, everything falls on this bell curve. Everything is normal, it, I mean, it's the terminology. Well, of course, what happened? These individuals selectively chose studies throughout history to postulate mm-hmm. that blacks were inferior to white people. And it was just a biological fact that we needed to accept as early as 1995. I know that was like 30 years ago, but still, yeah. this is pretty recent. When yes. certainly when we think about, you know, certainly this pervading view, and then we see that these problems continue to persist. You know, certainly more so on a medical basis, where we see that the um, the women who were in the ice asylum in um, Georgia, mm-hmm. where medical doctors gave them forced hysterectomies. Yes. And so this is recently. This is re- This is within Very the past recent. year, past yeah. couple of months. You know, yeah. so we see this pervading view perpetually being applied. Yeah, it's played out over and over again in, in different ways. 
it's different ways. And like you said, different populations. And I remember reading about, I think it was maybe last summer when I read about how they were doing hysterectomies on women in that were detained. And I can't imagine being a woman who maybe doesn't know the language doesn't really know what's happening, isn't really getting any information, has no contact with family, maybe lost their children, and now all of a sudden I'm being taken in for a procedure. And that's only what we found out is the hysterectomy. I mean, who knows what is actually, what else has actually happened to these people? And and this also reminds me of the Tuskegee experiment from way back. And um, if you haven't heard about the Tuskegee experiment, I've got a little quote here from the CDC kind of describing what it is. So this study initially involved 600 Black men, 399 with syphilis, 201 who did not have the disease. The study was conducted without the benefit of patients' informed consent. Researchers told the men they were being treated for bad blood, a local term used to describe ailments such as syphilis, anemia, and fatigue. In truth, they did not receive the proper treatment needed to cure their illness. I'm just going to interject this quote with saying that they had the cure the whole time. Like they had the cure. They figured it out. They figured out how to cure it. Um, And instead of making sure that these people within this study that they entered into under false pretense were administrated the, the cure, they, uh, the study that was supposed to last six months went for 40 years. Um, and there are some really disturbing pictures out there, but I, I think that I was glad that I saw them when I was in college and I first kind of heard about this. And, and then in exchange for the study, they gave them free medical exams, free meals and burial insurance. And so this is, this is not that long ago. This is like, maybe I, I don't have the date here. So I want to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, Dr. Stevens, but I want to say 1950s, mid 1900s. And these are people's family members that they took into this study under false pretense. And mm-hmm. it, it's just like mind blowing to me how, what people got away with and kind of continue have got away with in the past. I, I've read the, I've kind of taken steps into the book Medical Apartheid by um, Harriet Washington. Mm-hmm. I think that's her name. And I, I can never really get through it. And the part that hit me the most was that the quote unquote father of gynecology actually got the majority of his research done while he was basically torturing female slaves in this outhouse and taking their babies and experimenting with them. Um, He didn't give them any type of painkillers while he was doing these invasive experiments that they did not agree to. And it's just like the, the amount of not just suffering for the, the victims, but also the kind of twisted nature that for some reason, not for some reason, we know what reason it is, but the inability to see somebody else as human because of their skin color is mind blowing to me. So I know fast forward to, to now. So we've got, we've got this, obviously this, pandemic panorama (laughs) going on now. And I think we've just passed a year of having it here in America. And we've got different vaccines out from places like Pfizer, Moderna. I mean, at this point, it's like, you can just pick it. Like you pick nail polish, just like pick whatever vaccine that you want. Um, I know that there's a lot, a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion amongst everybody. I mean, in the entire world, Um, particularly in this country, regardless of what color you are, um, about these vaccines, whether you think it's good for you, whether you don't think, whether you you trust it. But I know in particular with the Black community, there's definitely like mixed emotions. Like how do you, what are your thoughts as a, as a, as somebody in the, in the medical field about this vaccine when it comes to Black people being hesitant about it? 
That's a great question. I think it's a great lead-in. And I guess um, if I want, I wanted to address a couple of things, and I could come back to the vaccine question. Um, the syphilis study actually started in 1932, so about like so it started, you know, pretty soon after, um, or actually right in the middle, you know, certainly of the war, but certainly. But I think that was part of the problem is that they took vulnerable individuals. Right. Vulnerable individuals. Right. And not only did they expose them to a very debilitating disease, they withheld treatment, as you pointed out, and they withheld treatment. And I think that that really speaks to, you know, certainly most of the problems that traditionally Black people have with trusting the medical community is that there's a withholding of readily available treatment right. that we're not deemed acceptable for, permissible to have, because either because of a bias or because of a more pervading, deleterious assumption made about how we process medication. For example, like we talked about a little bit about that in terms of the father gynecology, doing very painful surgical procedures on women who were enslaved because there was this underguided assumption that enslaved people do not experience pain or they don't experience pain to the same extent as their white counterparts. And sadly, that view still persists to today to the extent to where you have black individuals or black patients who are complaining about pain and those pleas are repeatedly ignored. You know, certainly we have the case of uh, Dr. Susan Moore in Indiana, you know, a physician, a black physician who has been treated by the Indiana um, health system. And certainly she is a medical doctor who's treated COVID patients. She knew exactly what was happening. She made her complaints very clear. She communicated very clearly with her her um, medical providers and it continually ignored her pleas. Again, an example of having treatment withdrawn or having having treatment, excuse me, withheld. And I think that that certainly speaks to present day issues that black people have, you know, certainly with trusting the medical community and certainly being able to more so access or being re readily available or being readily accepting of vaccines because of this pattern of withholding treatment. So you mean to tell me now that after all these years, you withheld treatment and now you want to give me something for free? Yeah. And now you want the best for me all of a sudden. <laughs> right. It's hard for me to reconcile these, these ideas. And you know, I think I also want to mention here is that certainly, and maybe the average Black person doesn't necessarily know about all these historical studies, yeah. about the syphilis study in terms of the Henrietta Lacks. They don't necessarily know, but guess what? They have a Henrietta Lack in their family. Yeah. They have an individual who was treated very similar to what happened in the syphilis study. So there's no need to know historically what happened, the historical racial trauma, because the historical racial trauma is tribal, it's familial. You have personal knowledge. You don't go to this doctor, you don't go to this facility. If you go to this facility, you go during the day. Is that healthy cultural mm. paranoia that has certainly mm -hmm. led to our, our continued survivability? and thrivability in terms of being aware of yeah. our environment. 
you know, and certainly in terms of what we're seeing yeah. today is a sign of that healthy cultural paranoia. So I use the word paranoia, but you know, in 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 a in a in a, in a um in a very specific sense, not to right. say that it is talk about the that that is abnormal, you know, but right. that. Like yeah. a healthy paranoia. Of Very much so. Sure that you are really doing your research and, and questioning the system that has never really been there to with, with you as a priority in mind. Like I know even like during COVID, there were lots of stories on social media about Black people, Black women going in to hospitals with COVID symptoms, being sent home saying nothing's wrong. I mean, and then ending up either with really terrible symptoms and needing things like lung transplants. And it's, it's just, it's just scary. And I know that this is a really important time and everybody's got their own opinion on the vaccine. Like a common question now, it's like, how are you doing? Are you going to take the vaccine? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I know for sure that I, I'm not for a multitude of reasons, but definitely just an overall distrust <laughs> Mm-hmm. of the medical system and my own experiences and the own my own scientific racism that I've experienced with going to emergency rooms, going to different doctors. And yeah, I mean, I don't blame any black person that's sitting here like, I'm not taking this vaccine because I don't trust y'all. I don't, I, I don't trust y'all. I don't trust you with my kids. I'm not putting this in my parents. I think another thing for me is like, I mean, the vaccine's only been around for so long. What what happens if thing, like what happens if something does go wrong after I get this vaccine? What if I'm one of these, you know, rare cases as we're calling them, and I have to go back to the hospital? Like my fear is I go back to the hospital and you don't believe me, or like you think I'm on drugs because I'm black, or you think, you know, you you have all these implicit biases that are playing, and you're not actually listening to me. And then the worst happens, you know, and then I'm out for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the one that has to deal with it. My family is the one that has to deal with it and they just go to the next patient. So that's, I know that's one of my own fears. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, those misgivings, you know, are certainly very healthy and certainly very understandable to have in terms of not being maybe extremely excited, you know, certainly about being open to taking the vaccine. You know, so because of like you pointed out, certainly personal trauma associated with your experiences with the medical fit, with the medical field. And I guess also, you know, I would also ask people maybe to take a step back, you know, in the sense of like the other side of the coin, you know, in terms of, you know, because like I mentioned before, is that treatment has been withheld from us. That's been more so the historical, you know, as I mean, certainly we've had notable examples were times where we were given, you know, the wrong treatment, but traditionally we've, you know, treatment has been withheld from us. And certainly, you know, in this case, it's um, the opposite where treatment is being given to us. And there are honest and serious attempts by health departments, by the current federal government, by the current administration of the federal government to ensure that that equal access you know, whether they're working with churches, community centers, you know, working with community organizations to ensure that individuals do receive, you know, the vaccine, regardless if they have access to the internet, whether or not they have access to transportation. You know, so I think that that really does speak to certainly a very honest effort. And then, and then along with that, you know, certainly when we look at 
one of the re lead researchers for the NIH, Kismakia Corbett. You know, she's a black woman, you know, who has certainly been involved, not only certainly in the development of the Moderna vaccine, but certainly has also been very much involved in the mRNA technology on which these vaccines are based on. And this vaccine, or the, the basis for this vaccine, the mRNA technology has been in development and research for the past 10 years. So that line of it is not necessarily new. You know, so I guess I, you know, I want to also offer that 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 piece of, you know, certainly factual information in order to help people to make educated decisions. And then three, of course, you know, you know, understand certainly the wait and see. But certainly, but if you are in a high risk category, you know, of course, I can't speak about all of these because I'm not a medical doctor, but certainly if you're in a high risk category or you have a comorbidity or core occurring disease, whether it's heart disease or certainly cancers it becomes you know certainly very central for you to really think about what are the risks and benefits and being able to certainly weigh those you know weighing everything that we've talked about and certainly you're and, and making your own personal decision based off the risk benefits ratio you know and certainly in terms and the people with whom you come into contact with you know as we talked about before in previous uh, podcasts is that we have a lot of intergenerational households so it's not just certainly people of the same age is mom taking care of grandmother great-grandma grandchildren you know so we might have four and five generations you know within the same household and so that decision that you make whether to get the vaccine or not not just doesn't affect you but it affects everybody else that you have you know contact with and you know certainly you know i can say personally that i you know certainly considered and thought about all of these things and i did choose to take the vaccine for these reasons you know because mm -hmm. certainly not only, you know, so because of my personal experiences, but also because of my professional experiences, you know, I work with um, vulnerable individuals and it would horrify me to no end if I contracted COVID right. and gave it to these individuals. Like I just, it would just be just, <laughs> yeah. and I'm sorry, I laugh and I don't, you know, I don't mean to laugh in a sense of, you know, but just thinking like the, thinking about the gravity of the situation and certainly how seriously I value life and certainly value uh, promoting health promoting decisions for everybody, you know, certainly, and I want to be able to perpetuate that with the patients that I work with, right. you know, so for that decision, I certainly chose the vaccine and chose to take the vaccine and everybody I come into contact with, I really do encourage them, you know, to take the vaccine. And if you're not going to take the vaccine, be open in terms of, you know, being able to read like public notices from the CDC, you know, so that maybe you can't understand maybe the 20 page journal article, but they typically um, disseminate that, you know, in a more publicly or, or more readily available format that the public can understand, you know, being able to read that in order to hopefully build your confidence to take the vaccine. All right, Dr. Stevens, you're trying to convince me to take the vaccine? Yes, yes. <laughs> My agenda is uncovered. <laughs> okay, now. <laughs> no, I definitely hear what you're saying. I, I definitely understand that there is, you know, there's a ripple effect whether you take it or not. I, I'm still of the mind of like, I, I, I just don't, I don't trust a lot of things and not just racial bias, but for me personally, I'm like, man, this thing came out so quick, but now I didn't know that the mRNA research has been around for this long. And then I've got like health issues that I don't quite know how 
my body will react. Like I've heard some horror stories and yeah, I think if I was like super healthy, like I was a couple years ago, then I'd probably say, Hey, whatever happens to me, I'll, pro- I'll be fine. Even if something ro- goes wrong. But for me having a chronic condition, I kind of, that it's another piece of my hesitation. It's like, they don't know, there's not a lot of research about what I have anyways. So then you add a vaccine on top of it. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to it, but um, I hear you. I hear you, Doc. I can't say I'm going to go run out to Walgreens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, we just put a seed there. And and, and what does the Bible say? If I could bring that anecdote. Yeah, if if I could bring that in. Just a mustard seed, you know? (laughs) I'm not going to tell you how big the mustard seed becomes, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so... so, um, I'm going to table this vaccine okay. um, suggestion, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess going back to, I'm going to go hop back into racial disparities in healthcare. And you are a practitioner, like you said, you've been practicing for over 15 years. You, in particular, work with marginalized populations. What, are, what do you think that, uh, so, what are some things that can be put into place to help reduce racial disparity in healthcare and in mental health care? So there are so many things, you know, and I, I think in a lot of ways, maybe they're one and the same, you know, in terms of some of the changes that need to be implemented healthcare-wise and certainly within the mental health care um, systems, you know, and I think, you know, so like we start more systemically because mm-hmm. that's actually where the problems exist, you know, certainly where we have race and SES, and these are always a proxy for the underlying systemic uh, pattern of white supremacy. Right. You and know, Dr. Where, sorry to interrupt. Can you um, break down SES? I know some people okay, don't know what that means. So socioeconomic status or income. And so associated with socioeconomic um, status is not only income, but certainly a set of beliefs a set of like uh, behavioral patterns that are associated with a person, you know, making a particular income level. Mm-hmm. And so SES is not just a quantitative measure of income, it's those inherent beliefs that's associated with it as well. You know, so, you know, I talk about race and uh, socioeconomic status being a proxy that these are more so indicators of what's happening underneath the surface. Right that gives light to certainly the pattern of, of racial discrimination, that power differential, yeah. where, you know, again, individuals who are more affluent, mm-hmm. income-wise, typically our white populations, have certainly this pattern of certainly receiving access to housing, so not only housing, better infrastructure, better schooling, better access to healthcare, to grocery stores, I mean, like just name it, you know, certainly the list, yeah. you know, and certainly, so the corollary is saying the true or the opposite is true, you know, certainly right. people of, um, who are black or brown, Latino or, or of African descent, they have traditionally at, or less access to these such resources. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and so when we think about certainly the racial bias, it speaks to that power differential. So like when we think about how do we ameliorate these, these, these disparities, right? There's no such thing as ameliorating. We have to eliminate them. But again, we don't necessarily have policies that are in place because it will require like radical changes 
in order to eliminate these th this pattern, right? So in terms of I, I this, the city escapes me now, but um, like where they have implemented reparations, where they're giving black citizens uh, black citizens of a city access to housing grants. Wow, right? where is that? I, you know, and I, it actually just came out in the news this past week. So oh, wow, and I, okay. I forgot to look it up. But, you know, certainly they they're giving uh, black individuals or, or black people um, access to housing grants because in this particular city that they have traditionally been discriminated against. Very much so we know about redlining, right? Yes. The pattern of certainly mm -hmm. drawing this imaginary line, you know, it's typically it was over railroad track. You know, one side of the line were certainly yep. more affluent white families, the other side of the line blacks. And then on top of it, certainly that really spoke to certain banking policies in terms of people who were able to get loans yeah. or refinancing mm -hmm. or even able to not and, and and let's just say if you were just fortuitous enough in order to have your um, finances in place, not being able to buy homes, you know, above or below that red line, depending on where, you know, it was located, the city or the locale was located. You know, so certainly, so, you know, so again, so we think about all the systemic issues that need to change, you know, in terms of certainly implementing better housing, better school systems, right? So I say better school systems, what does that actually mean? You know, certainly in terms of ensuring that access to city funds, like, so we talk about city elections, why they're so important, county elections, why they're so important, yeah. because guess what? That's where the racism happens, mm -hmm. right? To where you have funds that are being generated from all these different locales and they disproportionately reallocate that money to these different areas and guess which areas don't get the money or they find ways in order to reallocate the money, mm -hmm. you know, or through certainly through educational policy, right? Through the no child left behind, right? Your failing schools, they will receive less money per capita or per head based off of, you know, how many children pass this standardized test. <laughs> I was going to use a different word, but yes, you can use this standardized <laughs> test, right? Yeah. And certainly, you know, as a psychologist, you know, certainly I, you know, I do see the benefits of those, except for when it's used in its way to produce deleterious effects for the people by which it's used to help. That's the Supposed problem. Help. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's the problem yes. here, right? So again, so we talk about better roads, better school systems, better access to homes, or certainly to financing in order to purchase homes, better access to jobs and certainly education, or certainly if you have a job or education, being able to access training and promotions, right? Right, And receiving equal pay. We constantly yeah. talk about all of these things, you know, so certainly there are so many systemic issues, right? That certainly could certainly impact healthcare as a whole. But when we look specifically at the field of mental health, you know, so there's a lot of reckoning that we must do as psychologists, practicing and just research. You know, I talk a lot about the practice side, but research, there's so much reckoning that we must do. And we have to be honest about that, you know, in the sense of how our inherent biases impact and certainly sometimes not just our inherent biases, but certainly our intentional beliefs impact the people that we work with, you know? And so, you know, so in psychology, you know, we're very comfortable, you know, in terms of talking about um, like different manifestations within the room in terms of like, so it's like called the medical, me metaphysical, right? Like what's happening in the room that you're not talking about, you know? 
the relationship between the patient and, 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 and the uh, practitioner. But there are a lot of other metaphysical things of, of a cultural nature that yeah. we as psychologists are not comfortable talking about. You know, and so again, it's not just talking about these things, but actively addressing them in the room with the patient. And then also in terms of research, you know, because again, you know, we talk about research and I know I'm going on a little long with this question, so I apologize. I'm gonna try to cut it up no, here. Don't apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a lot to say, but you know, so, but when we think about this, so one of the consistent findings, you know, whenever we do research with, um, psychological research with people of different um, ethnic or racial backgrounds, we see that there's always a high dropout rate for Blacks. Always, consistently, consistently. And so the literature attributes, oh, where we have the prototypical dropout rate, you know, and they just push it as an aside. And when you say dropout rate, you mean dropping out of- um, I'm sorry. That's okay, <laughs> dropping out of actual therapy? Yes. So, okay. so for instance, so in psychological research, right? So typically, um, so like in a research design, you will have a treatment, right? A treatment may be a psychotherapy or a medication that you want to try to, in order to assess the effectiveness. And so certainly they'll invite a group of subjects or participants. Once they invite them, you know, certainly um, we, we typically want randomization, you know, where you're choosing people, you know, at random, but we want an equal um, representation of these individuals, right? Mm -hmm. That somehow reflects society in order to apply it um, to practical or, or to real life settings, mm -hmm. right? And so what happens is that, and then once these people are randomly chosen, then you randomly assign them to these different um, treatment modalities, right? So let's say if you have a new treatment, let's say it's actually you design a treatment, right? called the Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 therapy, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have like a control, right? So where people may not um, be administered any of the treatment. So so that's more so like our weight, what we call like a weightless control, right? And so what happens is that you compare the scores on different measures for those individuals receiving the treatment to those who are receiving or not receiving the treatment in order to look and see if there's a significant difference. And the thing about it is that so, you know, typically, let's, let's say if it's a 12-week protocol, right? So that's 12 weeks of treatment. Mm -hmm. We'll see premature dropout, meaning that these individuals will drop out week one, week two, week three, week four, or even before the treatment starts. And that's a pretty consistent finding within psychological research when we look at racial differences. Wow. And again, this finding oftentimes is just thrown in as an aside, you know, as it's, you know, that it's, Typical is to be expected. Oh, so there's an <laughs> expectation that if somebody is black or a person of color potentially that signs up for an experiment for a, um, a psychology experiment that they're likely drop off, and if they drop off, it's not really it's just the norm. Right and right and it's not necessarily just that individual, but you know, but typically we have a percentage, right, a thirty percent sometimes, which is a pretty high dropout rate. So one third of, of that particular uh, population, that subpopulation, drops out, stops participating in your study. No wow. follow-up, like they don't follow up, you can't contact them. Again, so it, it's, it's that consistent finding. And, and it's attributed as being just inherent in doing research 
with research stuff, with, with research participants. You're going to have a high dropout rate. Yes, we're going to have this. However, in terms of being able to study the reason for that dropout, you know, has certainly been an area that several researchers have tried to certainly pursue. And that's actually one of the, one of my other jobs, you know, that I've, I'm working uh, with a group of graduate students at the at Governor State University. Mm-hmm. We're looking at not necessarily, we're not necessarily investigating dropout rates specifically, but we're looking at um, or examining whether or not cultural competence, being able to converse and understand the factors that affect individuals of varying racial backgrounds, understanding those factors, particularly as they relate to racism, whether it's certainly a perpetual discrimination by police, shopkeepers, certainly school officials, doctors. those severities. <laughs> yes, doctors, yes, 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 doctors. You know, and certainly, and then of course, like just some of the typical examples of trauma that people experience. So we're, we're quantifying trauma, you know, in, in that, way in terms of like traditional racism and then and then we're also examining like traditional trauma car accidents witnessing death and so through this 12-week protocol we're we're working with just african-american youth and we're going to examine that data and you know i hope you know to have some really promising data yeah i'm excited to hear what you guys come up with that's that's definitely something that i hadn't i didn't know i definitely didn't know any of that so I'm excited for, for, so how long does it, you said it's 12 weeks? It's 12 weeks, it's 12 weeks. So yeah, so hopefully we'll be starting in, I'm like looking maybe June. Okay. So well, we'll start in June. I'm excited. So when, at the end of the summer, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to hearing about and reading about what you guys, what you guys found. Well, you, definitely, and maybe we can bring on the research team, you know, definitely. if you'd be open that would to be great. it. That would be great. I'm whoever you've got dr stevens bring them on <laughs> they've got you got an open invitation thank you <laughs> no that that's really great and i think that it's awesome i mean man you do so much in the mental health community specifically for people of color so the fact i'm not surprised that you're doing another project <laughs> to to help us and i just want to say that i i appreciate you so much and i hope that that you feel the love <laughs> and I appreciate every time you come on this podcast and, and really give us all this really great information and, and the work that you're doing is so needed and appreciated. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Ashley. You know, I'm just, just so indebted to Black Girls Have Anxiety too, in terms of not only certainly just uh, promoting this platform, but certainly the passion that, you know, certainly you have and ensuring that people have access to this information, you know, and I think it's so very important. I certainly appreciate that and admire that, you know, it's only about you and certainly the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much again. Um, The the one thing that that I did want to ask you, and this is something new that I've been doing at the end of every episode, what is one affirmation that you would give your younger self? I am worthy. I love it. I'm worthy. 
I love it. I love it. Well, thank you again, Dr. Stevens. We appreciate you. Uh, Thank you to everyone that is tuning in. This is another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. I will put all of Dr. Stevens' information in the bio. But yeah, thank you for another episode and I hope to see you soon. Hope to talk to you soon. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. No matter where you are in the world, I really appreciate your support. See you again on the next episode, but until then, follow us on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 and on Twitter at Anxious Black Girls. That's Anxious BLK Girls. And remember, just because you're struggling doesn't mean you have to struggle in silence. The more we talk about it, the more we heal. Oh, oh.